break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 22nd of July, 2021. Very happy to be back with you here as we continue the week and plenty for you here on the show. As we always do, we're going to be talking about a U.S.-German truce on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. We're going to talk about some issues around the death penalty here in the United States and how it intersects with the issue of intellectual disability. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we're going to start with even more information that has led to an even more murky situation as it concerns the investigation into the assassination of Haiti's former president, Jovenel Moise. As we reported to you on Monday, the more information that seems to emerge about the assassination of Haiti's de facto president, Jovenel Moise, the more complicated and convoluted the story seems to become. Since Monday, another piece of new information has emerged regarding the security company at the center of the investigation that certainly raises some eyebrows. Jorge Rodriguez, who is the president of the National Assembly of Venezuela and an influential member of the ruling party there, has revealed that they have evidence that security contractor CTU was involved in the attempted assassination of Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro in 2018. You may remember that assassination attempt also shocked the world as the assassins used drones to try to take down Maduro at a major public event. And CTU, of course, is the company that hired these individuals alleged to be the Colombian mercenaries who assassinated Jovenel. Antonio Intriago, who's the head of CTU, is a Venezuelan himself and is absolutely an opponent of the Maduro government. So the allegations certainly jibe with his political beliefs, at least, about that 2018 attempt. But of course, they're just allegations. That being said, it is part of a growing thread of connections between CTU and the far right in Colombia and Venezuela. CTU also, it seems, was a part of the fake aid concert held on the border of Colombia and Venezuela a few years back, promoted heavily by the Colombian government, the regional right wing, and USAID to try to create a humanitarian incident on the Venezuelan border. You, of course, may remember that after attempting to force an aid truck across the border, the Venezuelan opposition was caught torching the truck and trying to blame it on Maduro, and they just failed spectacularly. Allegedly, CTU played some role in that broader operation. Intriago has also appeared in photos and videos with the Colombian president, Ivan Duque, who is certainly the central figure of the broader Latin American right wing and a close ally of the United States. Duque, of course, denies knowing him and his team are claiming that the photos are just the type of thing that happens when you attend a lot of public events, in this case, campaign events, when he was running for president. 
Jovenel and his so-called government was actually the only CARICOM country to recognize the totally fraudulent Juan Guaido, who claims to be the president of Venezuela. So already there was some connection between Haitian politics and the Venezuelan right. Now, what all this means, who really knows, but it is notable that we just keep hearing more and more connecting the Colombian right, the Venezuelan right, and the assassination of Haiti's president. So it's a notable triangle of information there. Also interesting is the fact that the head of presidential security, Dimitri Harard, who is an object of investigation in this as well, appears to also be under investigation by U.S. prosecutors for arms trafficking. Harard is at the center of the most glaring element of the entire assassination, which is that none of the presidential security did anything at all, it seems. And according to reporting from the Miami Herald, Harard seemed to just more or less be standing around in the street rather than attempting to do much of anything. So from the beginning, there have been some serious questions as to the nature of what seems like an inside job. Harard is under investigation for arms trafficking by U.S. authorities, although, again, nothing proven yet. But Harard is, however, also a security contractor himself. He has his own private security company and has family ties to a company that has contracts with the U.S. State Department to provide security equipment to the Haitian police and also attempts to form an arms manufacturer in Haiti. So, I mean, again, this isn't to say anything particular about what this could mean, but here we are again with the key figure having some pretty shady ties to convoluted networks where business and politics and powerful nations seem to be colliding. And that just brings up one final issue that's still totally unexplained here. Why was it that 11 of the captured mercenaries ended up in the embassy of Taiwan? Well, Taiwan's a very close ally of the Haitian government, and the embassy was just conveniently empty. Now, to be fair, it does make sense that Taiwan may have told their employees to stay home a day after the assassination, but embassies are not just random places you just happen to break into. Did these mercenaries somehow think that they would be welcome hiding out at the Taiwanese embassy? Who knows? But again, just another unexplained tie to a powerful player with close ties to the Haitian elite and U.S. imperialist circles. All in all, this just reinforces what we said Monday. That really the more information that emerges, the more confusing this all is. And that the official narrative of essentially just a totally random guy creating a massive conspiracy to kill Haiti's de facto president and install himself is becoming just increasingly untenable as an explanation for what took place. Well, this month has been interesting and important as it regards the issue of who can be executed legally in the United States. Most notably, the Supreme Court ruled six to three without any oral arguments to overturn the reprieve from death given to Matthew Reeves by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. The state of Alabama is trying to execute Reeves, but that federal circuit court had ruled that they could not because his trial counsel was ineffective. Now, while the issue was ineffectiveness of counsel, it was directly related to the deeper and very fraught issue as it concerns the death penalty of intellectual disability. Since 2002, the Supreme Court has banned the execution of those deemed to be intellectually disabled. What exactly that means and how to measure it, though, has not been fully established. In Reeves' case, when he was convicted for murder at the age of 18, his attorneys had lined up a well-regarded neurophysicist to testify to the fact that Reeves was intellectually disabled and ineligible for the death penalty. However, before the doctor, Dr. John Goff, could testify, Reeves had an attorney switch. The new counsel never contacted Goff. Instead, they actually waited to the day of his penalty hearing to contact a clinical psychologist who told them she couldn't even speak to the issue of whether he was intellectually disabled or not 
but nevertheless, she still testified, which tells you something, and said that the partial IQ test she had done did not reveal intellectual disability. So clearly just a ridiculous lack of effort here on the part of Reeves' attorneys at trial. Now, in his post-conviction relief hearings, Goff did testify. As the Death Penalty Information Center details, quote, Goff testified at a hearing that Reeves has significantly sub-average intellectual functioning and that he has had significant deficits in multiple areas of adaptive functioning because those deficits appeared before age 18. Goff concluded that Reeves is intellectually disabled. And that reasoning that Goff laid out is essentially the reasoning that the mental health expert community has laid out what the true standard should be for courts all across the country, but there really is no standard at this point, which is why cases like this are so important. However, what the Alabama Court of Appeals ruled and what the Supreme Court ultimately agreed with is because the lawyers who botched his case did not testify, Reeves had not met the bar for proving that their counsel was ineffective, despite, well, the obvious facts of the case. There is actually no precedent that even requires them to testify. So this was really an absurd ruling designed to uphold the death penalty in the abstract. Since it was procedural in nature, it means the judges did not have to rule on the merits of whether or not Reeves met the bar for legal execution, but it also meant that they were able to create a new hurdle for people trying to appeal their death sentences due to ineffective counsel, which is actually a fairly frequent reason that people bring up when they appeal their death sentence. So the upshot is the case actually makes it easier to execute people by making the appeals process harder to engage in. Now, even though the issue of intellectual disability was not directly on trial here, the Supreme Court could have addressed it in their ruling. For instance, they could have upheld the death sentence for Reeves being vacated, and they could have noted the issues involved, intellectual disability in particular, is serious enough that it made the issue of ineffective counsel even more important to have an avenue to reconsider. Instead, they actually endorsed Alabama creating an entirely new legal standard to make it harder to challenge the death penalty overall. And that really is an interesting commentary on the nature of this court. Now, some of the conservative justices, including Roberts and Kavanaugh and some other cases, had seemed more open to addressing the issue of intellectual disability by establishing clearer standards that would mean fewer people would be executed for sure, but it would also certainly comport with exercising a higher degree of humanity in the sentencing process. And it's certainly clear that the patchwork approach to determining whether or not to execute someone on the basis of intellectual disability is deeply unjust, and that a large number of people who are executed fall into this category. So, in a way, it's no surprise that there is some conservative support for addressing this, because it hurts the broader cause of the death penalty by exposing its deep injustices. So, if you like the death penalty, you may be more open to doing some tinkering around the issue of who can and cannot be executed. All of the conservative justices are major death penalty supporters, and ruling as they did gives them some room to rule on intellectual disability standards at a later date, probably why they didn't heavily address this in this ruling even a subsidiary way. But it also means they were able to find a way to help strengthen the overall death penalty, which is not only growing less popular, but increasingly falling out of use all around the country. It helps the states that are just bent on executing as many people as they can avoid legal accountability that could slow down that process. So this ruling reveals that while there may be some disagreement on the how of the death penalty among the conservative majority, there is none on the if of whether it should exist or not, and they're willing to protect it. Only Justice Sonia Sotomayor has been consistent on the bias and brutality of the death penalty, but she has more or less been a lone voice in the wilderness, although sometimes joined by Justice Kagan. But it just really reflects more broadly that the death penalty has some very powerful friends at the highest level of the legal system now, and that despite tinkering around the edges, they aren't going to look too kindly on efforts to slow down the operations of the death sentence. 
The long saga of the U.S. trying to block the construction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline between Russia and Germany carrying natural gas is over. The U.S. and Germany have reached an agreement that will see an end to U.S. meddling in another country's domestic politics in exchange for a range of concessions from Germany that show, if nothing else, that the United States does the most and most consequential meddling of any country. The Nord Stream 2 is a pipeline which travels from Russia to Germany using a sea route and thus avoids Central European countries where most Russia to Western Europe pipelines currently travel. Western Europe relies on Russian natural gas to power its affluent societies, so the pipeline was a big deal and guaranteed to improve things as it concerns gas prices in Western Europe by increasing unfettered supply. It was good for Germany and really all of Western Europe on that front because countries like Ukraine and others have used their geographic position as leverage with Russia, often with U.S. backing. If they have some issue, they can cut the flow of the gas and hurt Russia. Now, it also hurts them because gas companies in their country, especially Ukraine, make a lot of money by playing a role in the transit of gas from Russia to Europe. So it's a heavy weapon. It's difficult to deploy without burning your own fingers, but it's there, the geopolitical game. Russia, of course, wants to avoid that. So Nord Stream 2 is one of many projects it's working on to cut those countries more or less out of the mix, or at least cut out their leverage. They ship a huge volume of gas to Western Europe, so they almost certainly never planned to stop transiting countries like Ukraine, at least in the near future. But they are trying to make it more difficult for those countries to use gas as a weapon in any sort of geopolitical or pricing dispute. And this, of course, enraged U.S. imperialists because it meant that their best friends in the crusade against Russia were losing valuable leverage. And it also meant that the U.S. had less leverage with Western Europe. The Central European countries are more on board with the U.S. crusade against Russia than, say, France or Germany. And it gives them more power in intra-European discussions on that issue and other issues since they can seriously affect relations between Europe and Russia with this gas leverage they have. From a strict economic point of view... It means that Ukraine at all have less pricing leverage with Russian gas companies, too, who can use pipelines like Nord Stream 2 to keep the flow going during contract disputes, which happen fairly regularly, which means ultimately the price of gas, if not going down, will certainly be more predictable and less artificially inflated. As Germany is aggressively trying to phase out coal and nuclear power, it is very dependent on foreign gas to keep the lights on. So having that kind of price competition, keeping things reasonable on that front, certainly helps German power companies and power consumers at the pocketbook level, at least. So the U.S. has been going out of its way to try to shut down the pipeline using sanctions and the threat of sanctions in order to maintain total allegiance in Europe to its strategy of confrontation with Russia. However, the position was becoming deeply untenable as playing a major role in causing friction between the United States and Germany. And the U.S. cannot afford to have Germany just start taking too independent of a stance on, to one degree, Russia, but in a bigger degree, China. And it also was not working because Germany and Russia were determined to finish the pipeline and just forged ahead. However, it was still a thorny issue and German elections could have upended the project by bringing the Green Party closer to the center of power in Germany. And they opposed the pipeline in favor of a stronger, more pro-U.S. stance on Russia. So it seems Angela Merkel, as she heads out, decided to cut a deal with the U.S. and just wrap this thing up. Berlin will now set up a $1 billion fund to promote clean energy in Ukraine. They pledge to sanction Russia if they abuse their energy policies to quote-unquote hurt Ukraine or other countries. No idea what that even means. And they will also appoint a special envoy to pressure Russia to keep gas fees to Ukraine higher than they really should be, which honestly is pretty remarkable. Germany and Russia can't conduct business with one another without the U.S. determining the terms of trade. If that isn't imperialism, I don't know what is. 
Unsurprisingly, the Russia hawks here in the United States are very angry with Biden, but it's unlikely they're going to get much of anywhere on this issue. To press harder, risks sending France and Germany hurtling out of the U.S. orbit. They've already expressed serious reservations with the new Cold War the U.S. seems to be pushing with China and to a lesser degree with Russia. So continuing to push on Nord Stream 2 could really alienate those two countries and have them say, we're just going to start doing what we want to do and not think too much about the U.S. Seems Biden recognizes this and wants to ratchet down the Russia tensions to more sustainably increase tensions with China, because increasing both at the same time has only driven the two countries, Russia and China, closer together and actually made them both stronger, more independent and more able to withstand Western pressure. So it's unlikely Biden will move off this point on Nord Stream 2 since isolating China is the number one foreign policy goal. Either way, it does show that at the end of the day, the U.S. is truly the meddler in chief when it comes to interfering in other countries' sovereign affairs. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York, East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles, Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. 